1: a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullenane. Welcome back to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. With 23 shows behind us, we are nearing a point where we've covered several elements of the era, from economics to race to politics and culture. But there are so many stories still to come that are going to surprise listeners, even those that think that they know the era very well. One of those blind spots might be intersectional histories of Americans. And that word, intersectionality, seems to be a hot topic, not least because its originator, the law professor Kimberly Crenshaw, has used the term to add nuance to lived experiences. In Crenshaw's research, he showed how exploring race or feminism can be singular experiences, and that politics and the law differs when you consider those two identities together. Female African-Americans, for example, experience discrimination in a unique way, and this is something that we've dabbled in a little bit in an earlier episode with Raylan Rabaka when discussing Du Bois and critical race theory. However, today we have an intersectional history that is most definitely understudied. I wonder how many listeners knew that several Native American communities owned African-American slaves, and I wonder if many knew that the practice of slavery continued among some tribes until 1866 after the Civil War ended. What was it like to be an emancipated African American that lived in an Indian territory? And add to this another element, religion. The African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME, the first church in the United States founded by African Americans, had evangelized in Native American lands, and not just amongst African American communities, but among Indian communities too. The sense of shared victimization by white settlers and the sense of shared interest made the church appealing to both. This is truly intersectional work, and it's the research of Professor Christina Dickerson-Cousin. In her new book, Black Indians and Freemen, she explains how the AME Church became the refuge of marginalized African-Americans and Native American peoples during the Gilded Age. Professor Dickerson-Cousin studied at Vanderbilt and has taught in New Jersey and Connecticut. She currently teaches at Quinnipiac University, and I'm excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Well, as I was reading the book, I thought that uh, I don't know how we're going to cover everything in in a short period of time, because there's so much much in here. Um, And the book is overlapping, I think, really with identities and culture mainly. So I'm going to probably stick to that. And you start the book with a really uh, great story from Emma Thompson Hampton and her parents were born into slavery. She was born in the Chickasaw Nation. Can you tell us her story and the little-known history of African-Americans living with Native American communities?
2: Yeah. So essentially, Emma Thompson, Thomas Hampton, she was a descendant of those who had been enslaved by those tribes. And so what I try to do in that introductory story is show how she is very much incorporated into this diverse world of Black and Indigenous people, Choctaw, Chickasaw, etc., And then she also has this very deep connection to the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And I can explain a bit more about the denomination's history if you think that's necessary. And so really with that story, I'm just trying to show that connection, that we often think about the AME Church in a very narrow way. And we think about what it means to be you know, African-American in a very narrow way. So with this story, I was trying to just right away kind of disturb that, you know, preconception.
1: I'm not sure many people think about overlapping communities like that in this period or others. I'm not sure people think about African-American communities living with Native American communities now. So what do you think that does to our understanding of the Gilded Age progressive era, you know, understanding intersecting and overlapping communities?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it just complicates it. I think even today, we again, have very narrow views about what an identity is. And we, you know, kind of have our checklist about if you're an African-American, you behave this way. If you are an indigenous person, you have, you know, these characteristics, but it's so much more complicated than that. And it's always been more complicated than that. So it's not as if, you know, people bring this to light is something new. This was the reality in which people lived. And so it only helps us to better understand our history and our current situation if we can look at it with more nuance in the past, absolutely.
1: I couldn't agree more. And let's complicate it a little further because we're gonna talk about religion now as well. I know. <laughs> the African Methodist Episcopal Church is the obviously the other major focus of the book. What makes the AME so central to the story of Native American and African American relations?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, let me just do a quick sort of primer on what the AME Church is. So it begins with Richard Allen, who was born in 1760 and was enslaved in Philadelphia. He eventually is owned by a master named Stokely Sturgis in Delaware. And Allen, because Sturgis, who, although Allen described him as a good master, Sturgis still sold Allen's family members away because he fell on hard economic times. And so understandably, Allen was in a a difficult emotional place in in that moment. So it's during this period that he becomes a Methodist, he converts to Methodism. And it is so important to him and Stokely Sturgis realizes it's so important to him that he even allows Allen to bring Methodist ministers to the plantation. And so during the course of one of the preachers preaching, Stokely Sturgis says, okay, I've been convicted, being a slave owner is wrong. And so he says, okay, after that, he could not you know, be content to hold slaves. Nevertheless, he doesn't immediately free Alan. Alan and his brother have to earn their freedom. So they have to save up money uh, doing a variety of different jobs. And so then Alan is able to purchase his freedom and becomes free in 1783. And then now that he is free, he begins his life as a traveling preacher. And one of the places he ends up going is back to Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And so starting in February of 1786, he starts preaching regularly at St. George's uh, Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. And he starts attracting a a large black audience. And so initially that was okay. But over time, the white members of this church became uncomfortable with the number of, of black parishioners coming. And so they essentially try to force them to sit in a segregated section. Alan and his companions say, that's not gonna work for us. And so they leave the church, and they uh, Allen purchases a plot of land in Philadelphia. Eventually, moves a blacksmith shop to that lot, and in 1794, it is, uh, you know, consecrated as Bethel AME Church. It is now known as Mother Bethel AME Church. And so, by this time, there are other Black Methodists throughout the Mid Atlantic region. Who are feeling, you know, similarly disenfranchised in white white denominations and white churches, and so in 1816, Allen invites them all to Bethel in Philadelphia, and they all agree collectively to form their own denomination, which becomes known as the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so, what I argue in the book is that Allen's purpose in creating this denomination, of which he's elected and consecrated the first bishop his purpose is really to correct what he saw as going wrong in the Methodist movement because he was really one of the early American Methodists period and so early on in in this Methodist movement why he was attracted to it is because Methodists were the people who were not you know discriminating against people based on their race and who were not you know doing those things so when he saw the behavior of those white Methodists at St. George's, he said, okay, they are the ones who are not doing what Methodism is is supposed to be about. Methodism is about this openness. And so that really is what I argue his focus was in creating the AME church, sort of reinstituting that kind of intercultural openness. And so with that, that is why it then makes sense that early on you see AME ministers reaching out to indigenous communities. So Alan himself had spent several months evangelizing among indigenous people early on in his ministry. It's not clear exactly who he went among, but he spent two months doing that. And then again, several early ministers in the AME church do the same thing. And so by the time we get to, you know, the the gilded age period, that has already been ingrained in the denomination. And so I forgot your original question, but but yeah, so that really, I argue, is a part, a legitimate part of early AME history, and so why I tried to emphasize that was so that when we get to the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, it doesn't seem like, oh, this is coming out of nowhere. No, really, this was what Allen's overall vision was to create an interculturally open denomination.
1: Yeah, so that, we, that it does answer the question. The question was really about the openness and about the uh, the, the missionary uh, uh, approach that the church took. I guess the, the question that immediately springs to mind from that is how did the church and its members react to those Native Americans that had taken slaves?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really complicated issue because when... AMEs get to Indian territory in the, you know, late 1860s, 1870s, certainly that's who they're confronted with. And they were invited to Indian territory by Black Indigenous people. And so they came to their communities, but certainly they're within this larger context of former slaveholders. And so on the one hand, you get people like Green McCurtain, who does donate a building that the AME church uses and then converts to a church? But on the other hand, you don't really see necessarily, you know, large numbers of these former slaveholders joining the Amy church either. So it's kind of a, you know, if you want to come, that's fine and you want to minister to these people, fine. But you wouldn't necessarily see a former slaveholder sitting in the church pew, you know, in the AME church with their former, formerly enslaved people. So it is a, you know, it's a complex issue, and I'm sure you know, AMEs who migrated there felt a certain way about these former slaveholders, but that was, the, that was the reality of life at the time.
1: And I guess it's the reality of their mission as well. Um, how big does the AME get in this period? And then, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about its sort of progression into years beyond the early 20th century.
2: Yeah. So I don't have numbers for kind of the current uh, church. Uh, they, there certainly are still many churches in Oklahoma, but in this period, we're looking at you know they they found a, you know several dozen churches by the time we get to the early twentieth century, and they certainly have hundreds and hundreds of members that you know proceeds over time, and as we get you know deeper into the early twentieth century, those members are Black Indians, Black Indigenous people and African-American migrants who are coming to Indian territory in Oklahoma during this period as well. So you get this kind of mix of people over time and more and more African-Americans keep coming and that helps to you know grow the church, but uh, you still have that core of Black Indigenous members as well. So it certainly does grow. And in the book, as you read, I put this in a larger context of AME migration into the West. So what's happening in Indian territory isn't happening in isolation, but rather it's a part of a larger phenomenon that I call the African Methodist migration, in which AMEs are continuing to expand throughout the West, establishing churches and schools for, you know, people of African descent, wherever they are and wherever they are needed.
1: It's a great, it's a great story, because I think you're right, you get to the heart of that intersectional you know, quality of American identity and experience. Um, When I read the preface, it became clear that the book was a very long time in the making. Um, It seemed to me that it was nearly 20 years. Maybe you can correct me on that, but how did you come to the topic and how is your research over that long period of time affected the final draft? Because I imagine you've gone through periods where you wanted to write more about one thing because it seemed relevant. And then at other times you thought, well, actually, this has got to go in. So maybe you could tell us about that story.
2: Yeah, I mean, I could have a whole second book with all the stuff I cut <laughs> because, uh, you know, you have to try to tell a you know clear story. Um, but, yeah, so this really started when I graduated college. So I'm actually wearing my my Spellman sweatshirt in honor of, you know, Gilded Age cuz Spellman was established in 1881. So I graduated from Spellman in 2004 with my BA in history and I had taken a Native American history class, you know, during the course of my major. And so I took a year off in between college and graduate school and during that intervening year I worked in my father's office. My father Uh, Dennis C. Dickerson, Sr. He is the now retired executive director of the Department of Research and Scholarship for the AME Church. Essentially, he's the church historian. And so he did that for about 20 years. And so after I graduated from college, I went to work in his office doing historical work. So when someone would call and say, you know, hello, I'm from, you know, Bethel Church in New Jersey. And, you know, I need some information about my church. Do you have anything? That's the kind of stuff I would do. I would, you know, look up that information. And then when I wasn't doing that, I would look at old, you know, Christian recorder uh, articles. So the Christian recorder is the official uh, newspaper of the AME church, and it was founded in 1852. And so we have the microfilm rules from 1852 all the way up to 1902, And so I would just, I just thought it was fun. I would just sit around looking at microfilm and I kept running across the term Indian Mission Annual Conference. And although I had been in AME my whole life, I had never heard of that before. And so I just got interested and did some more digging and wrote a, you know, a short sort of preliminary article about it. But when I ultimately went on to graduate school, I did an entirely different dissertation topic. My dissertation was about 18th century, New France. So I finished, uh, my PhD in 2011 and you know attempted to get some some things published for my dissertation, tried to get a postdoc, and just nothing really materialized. So I said, okay, well, I'll just go back to this this topic that already interested me, but you know, let's see if I can take it a bit further. And so that's really how I got into that and why there's that sort of time gap. Ultimately, I think it was beneficial that it took me a good bit of time to get the book together because it really gave me time to reflect and really think about what these, these topics meant and what the larger implications were. And of course we all wanna you know, do work and get it out you know, quickly, but it is, I believe ultimately to the benefit of the work that it did take time. I had to really you know, sit with the material and think about it and you know, leave it for a while and come back to it and leave it for a while and come back to it. And you know, I'm happy with the, the ultimate results.
1: Oh yeah, the book is, the book is wonderful. I mean, it's, it's it's. I think you're right about that, that sort of gestation period that research needs. It can't just, but also what a great story about being, uh, you know, reading microfilms, uh, you know, uh, in your spare time as, as a younger person. I think that is also inspirational and, you know, everyone should go out and inspire younger people to go and do the work that we do because it does lead to these research breakthroughs in in later years. Primary sources matter. (laughs) Absolutely. They sure do. That is
2: where, that's where the meat is. And that's, that's where you have to start.
1: And look, that's what excites us too, right? Dusty archives or even microfilm reels. I mean, I, you know, strange to say that excites me, but it does. No,
2: I get it. I, the way I phrase it is, it's the closest thing we're going to get to a time machine. Because when you are reading those newspapers, you are there, you are in that specific moment, you're reading the advertisements for whatever they're selling, you are, you know, getting all these articles. And so I I just, I love it. I'm a strong advocate for my own students doing primary research, because that really is where you're going to really come up with some interesting questions and then seek out those answers.
1: Well, let's dissect the research a little bit further, because I think you're right. There's one thing getting into the archives and putting yourself sort of in the the shoes of the people of the time. There's another thing with grappling with some of the, I suppose, uh, higher order questions that your book deals with. And one of them that really struck me as being critically important to understanding the time period is how African-Americans and Native Americans understood the idea, the faith, the... um, the religion of Christianity, because it's not really viewed as a white man's religion by everyone, uh, although maybe by some it is. But could you tell us a little bit about how those two communities grappled with the idea of Christianity?
2: Yeah. So again, this is a very complex issue. Much has been written about the, you know, problematic certainly uh, relationship uh, as you know missionaries came to indigenous communities, and that certainly is a, you know, for many a very painful experience. In terms of what I found in my research, I found ministers like Thomas Sunrise and John Hall really fascinating. So Thomas Sunrise is, well, he was in Oneida from the Oneida nation of the Haudenosaunee uh, Six Nations. And he becomes interested in black churches in the 1850s and becomes ordained in the AME church and you know pastors AME churches. And that's something that I certainly had never heard of before. And then John Hall, he was an Ojibwe minister from Michigan, and he becomes an ordained minister in the AME Church in the 1890s. He's actually ordained by Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, which is unbelievable to me. And John Hall really expresses the very thing you're you're getting at, which is what the AME Church meant to him. So he already had was a Christian before he joined the AME Church, but he had belonged to the Wesleyan Methodists. And so, when he gives these speeches before AME audiences, he explains that to me, I feel more comfortable worshiping among you. The way he describes it as Black people are our cousins. He says, you know, a long time ago, and he uses the term old Indians used to call colored men cousins. So I call you cousins. You are my dear cousin. And when, and again, this is kind of his terminology, when the great spirit comes into my heart and I want to shout, when I'm among, you know, whites, they say, you can't do that. You have to go out, you know, go outside. But among my cousins, I feel comfortable doing that. So the way he puts it is that, you know, worshiping within this AME context, it gives him a level of, you know, spiritual freedom that he did not find elsewhere. So for him, that's what that meant. You know, every individual person has their own you know specific experience but at least the way he explains it is that he felt more comfortable worshiping among his black cousins that they understood what it was like to be you know under this you know oppression and that they that they just understood and he felt more comfortable with them
1: and those two mich- uh, uh, ministries they were in ohio and new york right and
2: yeah so thomas sunrise he starts out in new england and then goes to Ohio and then does a bunch of traveling and ends up back in New England. John Hall is primarily in Michigan and Wisconsin.
1: So do you also see the, the same thing happening in the, the farther West, you know, in maybe Oklahoma or, or in the Southwest where the AME is giving credentials to Native American ministers?
2: So what we see happening in Indian territory is that initially when the AME church started going there in the late 1860s, early 1870s, they sent, you know, they sent who they had. They sent African-American ministers. But then they quickly realized that, you know, these people have, you know, cultural differences, linguistic differences. And so quickly they say, all right, we need to start ordaining, you know, Black Creeks and Black Cherokees and Black Choctaws. And so that's what they do early on. And I I think I talk about that in chapter uh, four, four. I think four or five about all the, the diverse ministers. And so, yeah, so the AMEs, you know, quickly recognize that there are cultural differences between an African-American from Arkansas and someone who was grown up among the Creek. And so, yeah, we need to have Black Creek ministers. And so we certainly see that happening. And that, I argue, is why you see such success early on, because they they are having people from their own communities ministering to them.
0: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: And, and what is the African Methodist migration? Because you talk about this a great deal in the book as well, and I think anyone who's interested in the book is going to be interested in this topic particularly. Yeah,
2: so... What I was finding as I was you know, doing more and more research into what happened in Indian territory was that it was not an isolation, that you can actually start going back all the way to the 1830s, where you see AMEs traveling to what was then considered the West. So at that point, the West would have been Missouri, you know, Illinois, Indiana. And so you see ministers going to these places and establishing churches. And so this continues. They go to California in the 1850s, and of course, Indian Territory in the 1860s, 1870s. And so what happens because of the way the AME Church is structured? Once you know a minister will go out and establish a church and have you know some members, every year they have to appoint a pastor to that church. Sometimes that pastor would come from that community, but other times because the AME Church had such a rigid well, rigorous credentialing process. You had to have a certain level of education and all that. Oftentimes, bishops would have to appoint ministers from outside of that community to come in. So that would initiate what I call this migration, where, for example, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner becomes the bishop over Indian territory in 1880. And so he sends for A.J. Miller a minister from South Carolina to come to Indian territory to pastor a church there. And so this example is repeated over and over and over again as AMEs continue to expand West and bishops will, again, sometimes appoint pastors from within that community, but oftentimes they would also import ministers in from the South or from other regions. And so this, I argue, is another impetus for Black Western migration. So there are a lot of reasons why Black people are leaving the South and leaving, you know, for the West. But I argue that this is another reason that, again, A.J. Miller is called upon by Bishop Turner to leave South Carolina and go to Indian Territory. And so that's how he ends up there and spends a significant amount of time there.
1: It does seem that in just about every chapter, there is something important to say about place. I mean, you just mentioned the sort of sectionalism there about the West and the South and, you know, but every part of the book, you know, a ministry in New York is different from a ministry in Oklahoma is different than a ministry in Indian territory. So why is that? What is, what, what, what is, why is place so important to the story about the AME church and the expansion and
0: uh, of it?
2: Yeah. I mean, you have to understand your people. Um, As I mentioned before, when ames initially start coming to indian territory from arkansas and they send you know african-american ministers and they realize oh wow there are people here who maybe primarily speak the creek language you know you know I, i can't do that so we need someone from here who can do that and there are all kinds of cultural you know specificities depending on your community what you know a mining town in california needs what those residents need is different than what you know, someone in Massachusetts might need. So the job of the bishop is to really look at what that specific community is needing. Uh, in many cases, they need schools. We see this specifically in Indian territory that there was really a call for creating schools. So you need to send someone who has some you know, proficiency with that. And so, yeah, so just as you know, African-Americans are extremely diverse, uh, each region needed something different And so the AME church was, you know, successful uh, to the extent that they were able to adjust to that and send the right people to the right areas.
1: So I'm glad you presented it like that, because that's exactly what I wanted you to say. I mean, (laughs) the book says it, but in a way, I'm sort of extracting that from you. And it's because one of the things that I didn't know about, and I was hoping that you might be able to tell me. And I, I don't know, does the book actually go into this too much, but it's about the difference between the AME church? I mean, you you mentioned there that it's got this ability. To adapt to the various places that it's sending its ministries, right? But how does the spread of the AME Church mirror or diverge from the adoption of other faiths in the United States at the time? I mean, does it follow a common trajectory, Christianity and the spread of it? Uh, you know, is it similar to white Southern Baptists or is it something unique?
2: Well, I think you can see a lot of similarities with what's happening with uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church or the Methodist Episcopal Church South, because the structures are basically the same. What individual members have to decide, however, is what they want out of their denomination. So uh, Reginald Hildebrand is a you know great AME scholar. He just recently retired from the University of North Carolina at uh, Chapel Hill. And he wrote a book called The Times Were Strange and Stirring that really helped me understand this. And in his book, He shows the differences between the AME Church, you know, Methodist Episcopal Church, Methodist Episcopal Church South, Colored Methodist Church, which is now Christian Methodist Church, AME Zion Church, and how they all, while they are all Methodist denominations, there are differences that individual, you know, African-Americans recognize. And so they can choose which denomination they want based on what's, you know, most important to them. So what the AME Church can offer is the fact that it is a completely autonomous Black organization and has been since the beginning. So if you are a person living in Indian territory and you have never seen a Black bishop before, the idea of having a Black bishop, that matters to you. So the fact that Bishop Henry E. Niel Turner is the first bishop who presides over the Indian Mission Annual Conference, that matters to people. They, they talk about how it matters to them. Uh, Turner is arguably the most, you know, one of the most well-respected African-Americans in the country. He was, you know, the first uh, army chaplain. He was a reconstruction politician, and he had this national stature. People knew who Henry McNeil Turner was. So for him to come to Indian territory and be their bishop, that was, you know, that meant something to these formerly enslaved people. And so that's, what the AME Church could offer. Also, the newspaper we talked about, the Christian Recorder, the fact that the AME Church already had Wilberforce University, an institution of higher education. So when people are deciding what denomination they want to join, they have a level of sophistication about it. And they're saying, look, I can choose this, I can choose this, I'm choosing that, and I'm choosing an autonomous Black organization that has all these other attributes. It's no mistake that W. E. B. Du Bois calls the AME Church, you know, the greatest Negro organization in the country, because of these, you know, these attributes.
1: I mean, Du Bois is someone that I was thinking about as I read this, because he himself, you know, is thinking about the ide- identity in an intersectional way as well. Whether it's the women that that trained him, or whether it's faith, or you know, and and he's he was something that I couldn't get out of my mind really when I read the book. I also couldn't get out of my mind the fact that there's a sort of contemporary relevance for how we think about the AME church and faith in America today, Um, not least for all the reasons that you mentioned about denominations, sub-denominations, why people choose them. I mean, what do you think the AME AME can tell us a little bit more about uh, sort of our current uh, spiritual context?
2: (laughs) Well, I think what it says is that there is still, there are still people who like the historical nature of the denomination, the fact that this is a denomination that has been around for 200 years, 200 plus years, and that matters to people. My own family, for example, my great, 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 great grandmother, Melinda Wise, She joined the AME Church in the 1870s in South Carolina. That was one of the first things she did when she became a free person. And so that matters to me. That means something to me. That is relevant to me. Other people feel that, you know, what is most important to them is the kind of worship experience that they have. So for people who want, you know, a particular kind of worship service, they may be more drawn to a more contemporary megachurch. And so, yeah. So people just go where their needs are met. They go where their needs are met, and what is important to them at that time. You know where they want to raise their children, what kind of support they want to have for their children. So yeah. So there is certainly you know enough room for you know all kinds of different expressions of faith. But the Amy Church is you know still going strong after two hundred plus years because you know it has this you know this history and this uh, tried and true. Uh, organizational structure that has allowed it to be flexible and there you know the amy church is not only in the united states the amy there are amy churches in europe uh many amy churches in africa amy churches throughout the caribbean we have amy churches in india the indian subcontinent so that just shows that there is a global uh, interest in what the amy church has to offer
1: And it had something to offer to Native Americans and indigenous people elsewhere as well. I mean, you write about the Indian Mission Annual Conference, which struck me as uh, a really important uh, thing that I didn't know about. Uh, Can you tell us what it is? And I ask about that because when I read about it, uh, it seemed comparable to the era's other types of activism, whether it was peace activism or whether it was other progressive reforms and domestic policies. This seemed of that sort of organizational ilk?
2: Okay, so the way the Amy Church is structured, you have Episcopal districts. And Episcopal districts are essentially what an individual bishop will preside over. So for example, I live in Connecticut. Connecticut is a part of the first Episcopal district. And so that district is then subdivided into annual conferences. And then those are subdivided into district conferences and et cetera, et cetera. And so the Indian Mission Annual Conference was one of the conferences within an Episcopal district. So at the time, it's it's shifted over time, but at that time, that was the eighth Episcopal district, which included Indian Territory, Arkansas, and I think Mississippi. And so that annual conference was composed of all the churches in that region. And so once a year, the bishop would have an annual conference meeting. So Bishop Turner, you know, from 1880 to 1884, he would go to Indian territory at least once a year and hold a a roughly week long meeting in which all the ministers would come. He would hear their reports, but you know, about what their church had done that year. And then he would decide which pastors would go to which church for that, that next year. And so, so the, Indian Mission Annual Conference was, you know, it's an organizational structure, but then within it, you have all these, you know, ministers and all these churches and all these schools that are within it and people doing, you know, important work within that context. So it's really speak to the sort of organizational structure of the denomination.
1: It was that organizational structure that made me think about how other sort of congresses were created, you know, whether it was peace congresses in the early 20th century that were were divided into subgroups to discuss smaller problems that you know still had real importance to the wider parts. And I'm not sure I, I, I'd I'd love to learn more about where that organizational structure came from and whether it was just based on geography or if it was something that was more just part of the entire being of the church, you know, that this is something that allowed everyone to voice their Uh, concerns, issues, and ideas?
2: Yeah, so being divided into conferences, it really is geographical, but what was beneficial about it is that, again, and I talk about this in the book, all these ministers are having to see each other at various, you know, meetings throughout the year, their district conferences, the annual conference meeting, Uh, if there's a women's missionary meeting, people would see each other, and so they get to know each other, and so you would see them, and I saw this reflected in the documents that they would you know work together as ministers in this particular area to put forward a particular uh, goal to reach for a particular goal. So yeah, it's organizational, you know, based down geography, but it does engender a level of cooperation among the ministers in that region, which can then lead to you know further uh, benefits.
1: Yeah. Okay, the Dawes Commission is something else that's worth uh, sort of speaking a little bit about too. I mean, for anyone that uh, isn't already familiar with the legislation and the, uh, the commission, it's a landmark uh, bill for Indian Affairs that created a system of allotments. And allotments are, is a quite specific legal term. And allotment was designed to effectively, but, in, but it, it proved ineffective. Uh, uh, it was supposed to progress Native Americans towards citizenship. Because of course at this time, Native Americans still didn't have that right. Um, The basic policy of an allotment, and you can feel free to correct me if I get anything wrong here, uh, it was the splitting of tribal lands into individual allotments managed by a single family that would farm the land or use the land in some way that would make it economically self-sufficient. And once they had done that, usually over a certain period of time, then they would be granted uh, American citizenship. And there's so many faults with the Dawes plan. But how did the AME church mitigate the problems with it and support Black and Native American communities throughout that period?
2: Yeah, that's a a fantastic question. And I I talk about this in chapter seven, because this was something I didn't know until I did the research, how integral the AME Church was in this process. So what's important to know about the Dawes Commission is that in order to decide who received an allotment, as you explained, was they created these elaborate citizenship roles, these tribal citizenship roles, determining who was officially a member of a tribe, which is, you know, problematic already that the government is making that decision, but this is what was done. And so in order to get on the Dawes' roles, you had to, you know, show up at, you know, the designated place at Fort Gibson on such and such day and such and such time. And you would have to, you know, bring your evidence to show that you were a member of the tribe, you know, maybe previous citizenship roles, um, and people would give testimony to say, oh, yes, I know this person, and this person lived here. For the formerly enslaved people of these tribes, they were put on the separate freedmen roles that were specifically for formerly enslaved people. And so they would, again, show up at a designated time with their evidence and with their witnesses. And oftentimes the evidence they brought were marriage records. You know, this A.M.E. minister married us at this particular you know time, and here's you know his signature, and that would help them get their citizenship uh, approved. They would have you know various witnesses. Sometimes you would see A.M.E. ministers showing up to testify before the Dawes Commission on behalf of their parishioners, and also A.M.E. ministers. Married black indigenous women oftentimes, so sometimes you'd see them showing up in the Dawes Commission records testifying on behalf of their spouse and their children, and so they're very much incorporated into this this story of the Dawes commission uh, and they were helping their members and relatives get these allotments that were then you know able to provide some stability and You know, wealth for African for African descended people in a way that you know African Americans in the South were promised, but doesn't you know fully materialize. So in this way, these AMEs you know performed a very significant uh, task on behalf of these Black Indigenous people, and also you see AME ministers appealing to the Dawes Commission, just trying to defend you know, the rights and the needs of Black Indigenous people. So I mentioned Dennis Barrows and, you know, several other AnU ministers who will appeal to the DOS Commission say, you know, you gave this deadline for when, you know, these testimony had to be in, but we really need an extension, things like that. And just making sure that the rights of Black Indigenous people would be respected and that they would get, you know, what they considered their fair share, given that they had endured generations of unpaid labor. So they thought the lease that they were owed was some was some land.
1: And of course, we know that the land that they often receive is not always the best plots. And it's, right. it also <laughs> tends to break up the reservations as well. And so right. I wondered how the AME dealt with that. I mean, the Dawes Commission is the law, so they have to try and do their best to help, like you say, and that's what they're that's what they're doing. But the the breakdown of those reservations, what does that do to the AME, its church, its mission, and its ministry?
2: Well, as far as I can tell, they kind of proceeded on as as previously, but that's a great question. One of the really devastating impacts of this allotment policy is that indigenous tribes lost millions and millions of acres of land, and their land holdings were just, just drastically reduced because of this. And so that is a a very negative impact on on these these tribal nations because of that. But as far as I have seen, the Amy Church kind of proceeded on. They did run into a hiccup uh, in regards to some land that they held for a school. So they had already established a school in the Creek Nation. And then as the Dawes Commission was getting going, there was some question about whether or not they could have this land and how much they could have. But it seems as though they proceeded on and were able to keep that land. They were able to show that the Creek Nation said we could settle here, so this should be fine. Um, So beyond that kind of engagement, it seemed as though they kind of proceeded on.
1: Interesting. And I I guess one other question about this, because the Dawes Commission is wrapped up with industrial capitalism at this time, too. And I think a lot of it is about really getting to the railroads and the miners their share of land so that it can be exploited for commercial purposes. How does the AME think about commercialism and, uh, and, and really how do they think about industrialization at this time, and, and particularly capitalism, I guess?
2: Well, the school that they established that I, uh, I alluded to before, initially it's called the Sisson Industrial Institute, and eventually it's called Flipper Key Davis, and they had an industrial campus in which they were interested in those kinds of pursuits. Uh, They, as far as I can tell, were in favor of, you know, railroads coming because that meant, you know, greater access and all those things. And ultimately, yes, those had really negative impacts on tribal nations. But as far as I can tell, there was kind of a, well, this is the system that we're in, so we're going to make the best of of what we have here. And I I didn't see uh, any, you know, stands against capitalism as a system from any of the documents that I saw.
1: This is why this book is so interesting. I mean, this is there's so much here in, in a rich story about uh, overlapping identities and experiences, or at least the way we consider uh, identity today.
2: Was I assume you're watching the the HBO show, The Gilded Age? Yeah, I did. And I
1: watched it. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And so what's been great about that is showing sort of the black elite, and so you see traces of that in the book as well. I don't talk about it too explicitly, but the wives of bishops, you know, they had a very, you know, particular, you know, way of dressing and way of acting. This was their um in a time where black women of the middle class didn't really work outside the home. This was their way of showing that they are, you know, domestic and they are, you know, refined and all of this. And so it, it really speaks to that story that we see in the in the show as well. And so I was really excited to see the show and to see that actually depicted because people act like this didn't exist, when it absolutely did. And we have many, many examples of it. Uh, we have college graduates among these, you know, AME ministers. At, at, certainly in this period, AME ministers were the best educated Black ministers in the country because the AME church required that. And so, you know, by extension, these ministers and bishops are marrying women of similar credentials. And so that there's certainly a lot to talk about with that. And that's, Gonna be one of the threads I pick up in my next project. <laughs>
1: There's a consciousness there about their future and their legacy as well. And I can't thank you enough for joining the show, Christina. This has been really insightful, and I would encourage everyone to pick up this book because it'll really change your mind about what spiritualism on the frontier, so to speak, uh, what, what was like. And it's not it's not what you expect at all.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to to talk about my work. I. Would love if more and more people could, could read it and engage with this material. And there is still a lot more to know. And as I said, I could write a whole book of all the stuff I had to cut because there was just so much information. But again, I appreciate so much you giving me this platform and I really enjoyed being here today.
1: Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, MichaelpatrickColinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.